This podcast is brought to you by OnTrack Studio. Hi, dear valued listener. This is Matthew from the M&M podcast. Before we march into today's episode, Michelle and I just wanted to take a moment to thank you, dear valued listener, for providing some amazing feedback on our first season. We record most of our episodes in the past, and so we've been receiving some really great feedback. And just on that, if any of you out there actually wanted to connect with us, we now have an Instagram account, which is at the letter M A N D. M the podcast. So that's M and M the podcast. And we absolutely welcome you getting into touch with us. Um, give us some word inspiration, tag us in any post that you think might be fun. And we really appreciate all of the support. Now, we hope you enjoy today's episode. Hello, Matthew. Hi, Michelle. How are you? I'm fantastic. For episode six, how are you? It's really great to see you for this final episode of our season two podcast. Mm. Last week, we had a quick chat about the place called Malacca, Mm. and we talked a bit about the Straits of Malacca, Mm. and you also introduced us to the concept of muck, and we agreed that we need to say it with a muck. Mach. Don't we? Yeah, going That's faster it. than the speed of sound and hopefully not exploding. Yes, those two. Which is really, really, really fast, listeners, very fast. Now, what I would love to do is hear all about your mood because you gave us a little teaser at the end of our last mm-hmm. pod and told us it's something to do with getting a little political. Go for it. Indeed, darling. It's time for Matthew's Monday Mood. Now, my mood today, Michelle, is a little bit political. I'd like to have a chat about an article I read yesterday around the Australian Republican movement. So we have very, very structured and solid movement called the Australian Republican movement who have spent the last 20 years putting together a new kind of design to get support for a referendum to make Australia a republic. Wow. So is it 20 years since we had the last referendum? No, darling. Do you know how long ago it was? God, make me feel old. How, how long? 1991. <gasps> no, no, I lied. 1998. 1998. Oh, gosh. Okay. That's a very long time ago. Right. <laughs> Your gasp when it was in 1991. <laughs> like I, only, I only just graduated high school then. Yeah, no. no ni- 1998 awful. was when the referendum was. And and it was the same party, but honestly, they just put on a piece of paper. Do you want the Queen or not? Yeah, it was never going to fly, was it? It was hopeless. And <laughs> you no need one, to ask the right question, I hear. Yeah, yes. and no one understood. You know, no one understood what that, like yeah. changing from a monarchy to a republic is not just painting your blue, yellow, honey. It's a complete different ball game altogether. And, and this people is, need to understand the way the structure of the government's going to work. Absolutely. So is that what they've been working on for 20 years? That's right. So they have been cool. working for 20 years on a new form, a new style of government relating to us becoming a republic. And I'm going to start off by saying that in 2019, a study from ANU, Australian National University, revealed that only 51% of Australians actually support the Queen as our head of state. 
Now, because of that report, what these guys decided to do is to gather as much information from the public as possible around the understanding of the monarchy versus the republic. And this referendum will only take place once the Queen steps down. Oh, wow. Okay, that's, I would say, really germane to people's decision-making. Absolutely. I think that people have, if they're a monarchist, often an emotional attachment to the Queen herself. Absolutely. And I hear monarchists tell me that they'd prefer not to be ruled by Prince Charles. That's exactly right. And, look, I've watched The Crown. You've watched The Crown. We know about her. She's actually a sensational human being. And what she did for the United Kingdom and and for really the whole entire world is quite profound and deserves a round of applause. And And her impact really in Australia now is only symbolic, isn't it? Correct. She's on the back of our coins and she wears a, a, a crown. But we're a very progressive people and you and I both wear crowns now too and we're not the Queen. Well. Always. Yeah. <laughs> Tiara. <laughs> um, but so, so what they've done um, is that they've spent actually since that 2019 poll and they realised that the Queen still had 51% of Australians on board. They've been working on developing a consensus position on a model for Australia to become a republic to ensure there is common ground for the reforms. Now, these common grounds are so that when this is presented and given to the public educationally, we actually understand that it's not just joint the Queen or not. And so what it will mean is when she steps down as the, the head of the monarchy, they plan to propose this referendum immediately, which will thereby see Australia have a president and a governor general. Now, we already have a Governor-General and his role is very, very powerful because he's the direct link to the Queen and to the monarchy. And so everything has to get passed through the Governor-General from Parliament in order for it to be, I want to say institutionalised, but that's not the right word. Help me out here for it to be. So the Governor-General then, he or she, I might say. Yes, sorry. Because um, Quentin Bryce is not that long ago, um, Dame Quentin Bryce. That person will retain their independence from the government, Mm -hmm. their independence from the law courts and their independence from the monarchy. And indeed the monarchic connection will simply be cut and that person will still retain a lot of power and indeed the power to sack the government. But to whom would that person go if they intended to do something as uh, dramatic as dismissal of a government? Well, it's all on their head. It's all on their head. The Governor General will actually retain more power in moving into a Republican than the President would. So we would get a President of our country and the President of our country, just like I guess our Prime Minister right now, would represent the House and the House would still have, you know, as many parties as possible, but the power given to the Governor General to remain bipartisan would increase, which holds the House at more accountability. It also opens up the house to be more than just a a two-party system which we all say that we know that there's about four or five parties that actually have a bit of um you know grut or power to their to their party but with the governor general actually having more power to sign off on and approve on things than the president themselves the ground level of parliament becomes a lot more spread and there can be a lot more vote and there can be a lot more opinion and there can be just it will move towards a much more european model would the number of seats in parliament be increased then is that 
part of what you're saying, that there'd be a redistribution of electorates? Absolutely is exactly what the... But that that would remain up to the Governor-General once this new referendum and reform actually happens. Good, because what I was going to say is, hold on a minute, we're complicating it too much for a referendum. But if the, the, the question at the referendum is simply about changing from being a... Westminster Parliament Mm -hmm. to being a parliament that is Republican in nature. So to create a Republic of Australia rather than the Commonwealth entity of Australia, Mm -hmm. that's the only question that gets asked. I think that might fly. But yes, complicating it further with electoral change, it would be great if that can be the second step, I suppose. Uh, I think. Where do you stand? What's your position on this, Matthew? Look, I. I haven't given, I'm a 40-year-old man living in the Commonwealth of Australia and I haven't given it all that much thought. 1998, when the referendum happened, I was actually on my way to fly overseas and I actually voted in the airport. They had little airport pop-ups and I voted to remain a monarchy because the system to me, I think I was 18 years old or 17 years old and the system to me didn't seem broke. And Princess Diana had only just died and we were all still reeling. Um, yeah, good point. Okay, that's that, that, a really good point. It's really important to hold this into the climate of when these things are introduced. And yeah. back then, we're talking, you know, 20 plus years ago, the Queen was a lot younger and a lot more involved still. And Diana had passed. And we were, you know, as a nation, Australia really held the monarchy really close to our heart still. You remember Woman's Day and New Idea had Diana on the cover for three years. And then if it wasn't. She was the patron pretty much, exactly. And I if- mean, she and she could do no wrong to start with in the eye of the media and then could do no right until she died at the end there, which was pretty devastating. Mm. Um, But I hadn't given any thought to the fact that that would have, of course, been in the minds of voters. Okay, so do you think... That just to just to put a finer point on it, do you think you're leaning further towards republicanism now than you were then? I think so because, and the only reason I'm going to say this is that I think that our current House of Representatives isn't diverse enough. I think that if the Governor-General is given different levels of power and, as you say, is cut off from the monarchy and therefore able to remain more open-minded to restructuring in time the way that the House of Representatives works. I I think that this country is doing really well in a lot of ways and really not well in a lot of other ways. We're progressive and regressive at once. Our representativeness is certainly not um, ideal, is it? It's really narrow. It's narrow. And if you look across the two major parties, so Liberal and Labor, uh, they are also predominantly white mm-hmm. both of the both of the parties now but we've got a greens party that does hold some seats in the upper and lower houses and i guess that the rise of the independents especially around the uh, i can't it's just gone out of my mind now but the name of the group that's sort of pulling a number of independents together that's being run by um homes accord um i think that that really indicates and certainly the rise of people like zali stegel in parliament mm-hmm, there mm-hmm. there are really good indications i think that there's a push yep. for a greater a greater diversity in representation and certainly there's no doubt that a more diverse ethnicity across both houses would be awesome Agreed. And, Fascinating. And I like gender, it when you get and gender bias and all of that. I'm I'm really tired of uh, politicians at the moment being held to a sexist cis white male kind of trope. 
instead yeah. instead of it being around the decisions that are actually being passed at the back of the house while those tropes are being put in our faces. I'm, Good, I'm, yeah. I'm getting a little bit tired of the lack of accountability from the big boys and the exploitation that's used around that to kind of have little slips of bills passed while no one's looking. It's, it's getting tiring for me and I think our voices need to be a little bit more collective. Honestly, whether we're Republic or not, I'm tired of the system as it is and I think an overhaul of the procedures of how this house works, the, the foundations of this house, which were formulated 300-odd years ago, no, 250 years ago, not even 200 years ago, good grief, um, the, these foundations, uh, that it's not, it, it no longer stands up in today's current contextual climate. No, it's so true. And our constitution and the way that so many of our older laws, uh, the language in so much of our older legislation definitely refers more to a an archaic version of Commonwealth mm. in which we really no longer participate. It's almost only symbolic now. Well, I love that. I love you getting political. I'd like to see you political more. Thank you very much. It's rare, Michelle. Introducing. It's, it's rare for me to put on my political hat. You know that I remain very quiet when it comes to this kind of stuff because I'm not a cage rattler. And to be fair, devalued listener, I'm quite oft not educated enough to have these opinions that can become the language that we have to use around when we talk about this stuff needs to be really considered and the education that comes around that needs to have base. I don't necessarily have that and so I keep quiet on a lot of this stuff because I don't feel I'm in a position to really voice that but I think that in itself is kind of indicative of the issue that I'm trying to raise here. I agree. And I love the fact that you applied your intellect when you were 18 and that you are implying your intellect now to the decision making. And I hope that all voters do. And I will await with bated breath the referendum. Marvellous. Well, well um, Thank you. she's got to step down, but apparently that's not too far away. We know she's not that well. And you seem really impassioned by this, which makes me think that perhaps I may have even made you moist. <laughs> I think you did make me moist. I tell you what else is making me moist. Family, F-A-M-I-L-Y. <laughs> now, what I'm talking about there is family, not only the biological family, so the beautiful people who made me and had me and looked after me while I grew up, and all of my brothers, got lots of them, i got five brothers, they're all younger than me, and my aunties and uncles and my wider family. I'm also though talking about my logical family. And I love this term, which I heard quite recently. And what it refers to are people like you and Tom, who are part of my family. You just weren't around while I was growing up. So what's making me moist are all of the people in both my biological and logical family who give me so much wide access to a variety of different opinions on everything, Mm. who give me love, who give me a kick up the ass when I need it. Mm-hmm, me, and, I'll do um, that. That's who, me. Yeah, who give me constructive feedback and sometimes destructive feedback, which is okay when it's on a podcast and it sounds funny, so, you know. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You're welcome. You're welcome, Michelle. You're welcome. <laughs> You're too good. So that's that's what's making me moist. I'll keep that pretty brief because I would love now to understand from you everything to do with mm. the word mawkish. <gasps> we said it together. Let's do it again. Ready, mm. Michelle? Morkish. Oh, my God. It's almost like we're in the same bed. Um, Morkish, dear valued listener, M-A-W-K-I-S-H. Morkish. It's just a delicious word to say out loud. It makes my – I have a physical response to it. My body – 
my body really enjoys saying it more. He's kish. actually shimmering, mm. dear listener. He's shimmering and shimmying. Mawkish is an adjective and it has two meanings and I'm going to go into the etymology of this word and then talk about the the way that it's progressed as a word because it's a delicious progression. I think this word is glorious. Mawkish means, Michelle, to lack in flavour or have an unpleasant, sickening taste. That's its kind of literal meaning, mawkish. And then the flow on from that, which is now recognised as definition, is that mawkish also is an exaggerated or childish, over-sentimental, maudlin, mushy or schmaltzy emotion. So you can right. kind you can kind of see how those two go hand in hand. So first being lacking in flavour or most importantly the unpleasant sickening taste. So you know how sometimes we say like we'll watch a movie like a rom-com or we'll watch the days of our lives and it's just sickening like we go oh the the love that they're, it, they're not ill but the way that they're expressing their love for each other or the way that this wedding is taking place it's kind of sickeningly sweet you know that expression yes. yeah and not really believable either i mm. suppose that the 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 level of sentimentality is too great that's right because it's become so exaggerated that it no longer represents a kind of state or emotion that we can project ourselves into being. So it's normally a presented kind of emotion. And I like that they do childish around this because we need to focus on that for a minute because children living in their worlds of play and honesty just express their emotions mawkishly, meaning, okay. meaning when a child's happy, right, like the child doesn't cross their legs and have a slight smirk and a glimmer in their eye that you then inquire to and go, dearest child, where is that smirk? Well, adult, I'm feeling happy because no, 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 no. They do five <laughs> star jumps and they go, I'm happy. You know, they don't. Squealing, that's right, jumping all over you. They don't hold it back. It just yep. comes out of them. And so this kind of exact exaggerated expression is known as a mawkish expression. And that leads itself to getting, if we took that expression and made it an adult expression. So if you went and, you know, visited your neighbor and they opened the door and did five star jumps and screamed for their, screamed their heads off about how happy they were, you'd almost be concerned. <laughs> yeah, I'd be thinking more than just mawkish, I think. <laughs> yeah. So that's where the, the mawkish as an adult, the, the exaggerated emotional reaction, that's where it comes from. It comes from this kind of place of, Wow, that's a lot. Like you, pantomime sort of feel. Yeah. Pantomime kind of feel. Well, beautiful segue into, can you guess for me what is the most described mawkish performer? Pantomime's really close. Oh, okay. So maybe maybe a performance that has no speech and requires huge gesture and big facial expression. Are we talking mime? It's the mime. Uh-huh. So a mime performance artist doesn't speak. Okay, so as an adult, if we have a, uh, a verbalization taken away from us and we can't express our emotion verbally, we do it physically. And when we do it physically, because we're not saying, hi, I feel really happy, mad, sad, whatever, we express mm. it much bigger. And a mime takes that to a whole new level. A mime paints their face with the emotion. 
Yep. You know, if you think of a sad mime, they'll often have the teardrops coming down their cheek and they'll have the frown drawn in and yeah. they'll walk around with this kind of, you know, sad posture. They will give you a super exaggerated version of this emotion. They are known as a mawkish performer. That's fascinating. And the the sentimentality that underpins some of the physical movement to create an understanding of the way the poor performer's feeling, mm-hmm. but also their big movements to create, for example, a chair to sit on that isn't really there. Mm-hmm. I really get it. That's fascinating. Okay. Did you ever see Marcel Marceau? Great M words. Marcel. Mar- oh, Marcel. No. <laughs> It just made it you. You just became Marcel. No, I know of, um, but I haven't seen in person. I've only ever seen, I think, a few snippets on online. But, you know, one of the best mimes ever. Um, oh, I was lucky enough to see him when I was a child. And oh, I can wow. tell you that I could see on that stage a whole litany of people at a party that he was at. It was truly astounding. He made those people real on a completely empty stage. Mm-hmm. He is he he was Morkish. truly a master. Truly Morkish Marcel Marceau. I love mm. it. MMM. So back to the actual word itself. Now I like this. The etymology of the word originally it originated from the Latin of mork. And mm-hmm. mork M-A-W-K-E means maggot. <laughs> Mm. Oh. Another delicious M word. Now, why mawkish? Because the expression mawkish originally derived from the idea to open up a can of maggots. Oh, so okay. And not necessarily can because we're going back now, I think, about 500 years. But the expression was that imagine if you go to open up Open your- up a muslin of... <laughs> Muslin of maggots. A banana leaf of maggots or whatever it is. You go (laughs) to open up your can of condensed milk, which is meant to be sweet, and inside is a bunch of maggots. And so that's where Mawkish originally came from. And the English stole it in 1697 and turned it into the unpleasant, sickening taste. Fascinating. So really what we're saying when something is mawkish is that it's maggotish. That it's that it Ooh. tastes disgusting. Yeah. Well, in its etymology, that's where it was birthed from, but it meandered and, and moved through that, which I love, I love, I love. I love when language does that. It exactly. started off by being an expression used for when something tastes gross, like a can of maggots. And in all honesty, <laughs> I can't imagine anything worse than eating it, like opening up a can of maggots and having that in your hand. Like that is the horror of all horrors in my world. (laughs) I would cut my hand off. Yeah. So we took that expression and we changed it into kind of a metaphor of it being an exaggerated or over-sentimental, mushy, schmaltzy, Connected yeah, schmaltzy to, is a great word for it too, isn't it? I really get it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Connected to okay. the idea of a sickening taste. And so that, my love, is mawkish. And just before we wrap up on it, because I freaking love this word, it can also be an adverb. So we can say she walked mawkishly. Ah, very good. Okay. Mawkishly. So that, what we're saying there is she's walking over the top. You know, yes. she's she's in she's in you know aisle three at Coles just getting her her groceries, and she's walking like she's Claudia Schiffer in George Michael's Fast Love film clip. You know, and so get her Walmart on for God's sake. And so power to her, but she would be described as a she's walking mawkishly. And darling, it can also be a noun. You can actually describe something as having mawkishness. Oh, okay. So, mawkish, so- mawkishly and mawkishness. I freaking love it. 
So mawkishness can sort of overtake a performance. You could you could think halfway through something that wasn't supposed to be pantomime. God, this is so mawkish. Exactly. Everyone's so sentimental and, and um, days much. of our lives-ish. I days love of it. our lives yeah. And now I'm going to wrap this up by saying that I'm going to come clean about something that Devalued Listener and Michelle will not be surprised about at all. I love mawkish. I love Mawkish too, and I'm going to start using it, I've decided. Well, I love Absolutely. it literally. It's like, in my vocab now. I'm currently re-watching all of Melrose Place, the original. And oh God, you're putting yourself through a shitload of Mawkishness there, darling. It's, it's Mawkishness supreme. Every shot, every episode is over the top, overdone, drama, love, emotion, sex, and I can't take my eyes off the screen, mainly because of Crazy Kimberly. God, she gives me life. But that, it's the most mawkish show you can ever shake a stick at. And so I'm the- really going to have to start getting into some binging with you on this television because I get left behind. I think I saw half an episode of Melrose Place. The mawk, the mawkishness all over it really put me off. Yeah, it did most people, but I love that schmaltzy shit. I just love it. Tom walks into the room of a nighttime and sees Melrose Place on and the turnaround and out the door is so quick. You just imagine me dust. like, I'm out of here, man. You just see the dust and I look over and all I get is like the dust settling as I realise that someone's been there for a microsecond. But, my <laughs> love, that's Mawkish. Now, I want to wrap up that and I want to move on to something that we started earlier on this season, which was a, mo- uh, a moist moment of Michelle's. Now, dear valued listener, cast your mind back to the moist moment where we talked about Mary Dobson and Mary Shelley and, therefore, Mary Wollstonecraft. Now, this was a moist moment that Michelle had because Dobson married a socialite and dressed as a man, and Michelle cut me off if I get this wrong in my memory stroll, um, dressed as a man and stayed with the socialite while she was pregnant to cover the, the, the ensuing drama. And Mary Shelley was... What was the connection to Dobson? So Mary Shelley is the daughter or was the daughter of Mary Wollstonecraft and the Mary that we're going to explore a little bit a bit about today is Mary Wollstonecraft. Love it. Um, so Mary Wollstonecraft married uh, Edward Godwin and so her surname became Godwin but we uh, refer to Mary Wollstonecraft because she wrote under that name. She was an author. She was a thinker. She was only 38 when she died. Oh, my goodness. So Mary Wollstonecraft was born uh, as the second of seven children uh, on the 27th of April, 1759, and she died in 1797 at 38. Wow. She was brought up by um, an abusive father who made her life hell at home, and she left home very early. I just have to have a little bit of light banter by telling you that the place she was born in is called Spitalfields in London. Spitalfields. It doesn't sound at all appealing. It sounds like it might be covered in saliva. So I thought I would um, let you know that. Her father, Edward, uh, mismanaged his share of the inheritance that he received from her grandfather. Her grandfather was a successful master weaver. So Mismanaged? Do you mean that he went to the pub and put it all in the pokies? Pretty much, pretty mm. much. He tried to establish himself as a gentleman farmer and that didn't go so well. No, it never does. So um, social decline, financial decline, and Mary got out of there. Now, the other thing is that um, she was she was received a formal education, um, but she only received it in a pretty haphazard sort of a way. Mm. And 
Therefore, she set up a school, a school for women. She then picked herself up and went to Portugal. She set off on a trip to Lisbon where her friend Fanny had married and was expecting her first child. Mm -hmm. On board the ship, she helped someone with consumption. She ended up over in Lisbon and she related her experience on this trip in her very first novel written in 1788. It was called Mary a fiction. Now, I've got to tell you that Mary Wollstonecraft was a fan of long and fascinating titles for the stuff that she wrote. (laughs) So, for example, her first book uh, was called Thoughts on Education of Daughters, colon, with reflections on female conduct in the more important duties of life. Wow. Isn't that gorgeous? It's a lot. Now, that tome consists of brief discussions on topics such as moral discipline, artificial manners, wow, boarding schools, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the benefits which arise from disappointments, and the observance of Sunday. The benefits that arise from disappointments. Isn't that beautiful? And on the treatment of servants. Oh, my God. Can I shift it back a bit? When she opened this school for women, was this on Mm. the backhand of having an abusive father? Was this her? Yeah, abusive father father and shitty education that had been really fragmented. Mm -hmm. So what she was trying to do was create a place but also a concept. So the place was the school uh, geographically, but the concept was consistent, reliable, equal, a quality of education of women. Mm. And she certainly didn't achieve that completely in her life, but, my God, she was absolutely critical in creating, yeah, the concept of being able to even be educated as a woman. At the late 1700s, this sounds like the birthplace of feminism. You know, like this, this was unheard of, and I imagine that she was a pioneer for this kind of... She was a pioneer of feminism, absolutely, and she was also a pioneer of gender fluidity and of sexuality. So she had a number of relationships that were questioned at the time as same-sex intimate Mm. relationships, and she also played around a bit with gender and really focused, really considered the place of woman in a society that was oppressive, repressive and had expectations on her that she simply didn't want to meet. Mm -hmm. Now, she only died at 38 and she has a huge, prolific back catalogue of gorgeous stuff that she wrote. So I'd encourage all of our readers to go out and start reading some of the stuff that Wollstonecraft created. Mm. It's something that I'm going to do. I'm going to share with you another two titles because they're absolutely beautiful. Please do. One is The Cave of Fancy, comma, A Tale. Wow. I would just like to say that I'm pretty sure Tom has used that in a bedroom before, the cave of fancy. Let's move <laughs> Show on. me the cave of fancy, baby. <laughs> Let's move on. What's the other one? And the other one is original stories from real life, semicolon, with conversations calculated to regulate the affections and form the mind to truth and goodness. Oh, my God. How articulate. And- How articulate, the most important one that she wrote was a consideration of the rights of women, and that was called a vindication of the rights of women. Mm, A vindication. Like there's no question 
that Mary Wollstonecraft was challenging a patriarchal, systemic, oppressive history. You- with very little funding, with very little support, yeah. and with a, with a husband who um, wasn't so hot either. William Godwin, her husband, then wrote memoirs of the author of A Vindication of the Rights of Woman. That was in 1798, and she prepared her tome in 1790. Wow. So... Mm, very interesting. So she she then birthed uh, Mary Shelley. Ten days later she died after that birth. So Mary Shelley was then brought up by her father, Godwin, and, and then met Percy Bysshe Shelley at 16. Um, and Percy Bysshe Shelley was five years her senior and already married. The, wo- the woman to whom she was, he was married suspiciously died after maybe jumping but probably being pushed into the river. Um, Interestingly, back in Wollstonecraft's day, she'd tried to kill herself by jumping into the Thames. That was unsuccessful when she was resuscitated with resuscitation, a very new approach to keeping people alive after they've had uh, an accident. And it is interesting to consider that maybe her resuscitation, her being really brought back to life, might have been the start of Mary Shelley considering reanimation and writing Frankenstein. Frankenstein. Oh, my God. That is freaking mind-blowing. So questions. Okay. Was Did she throw herself into the Thames? Okay. You said she died 10 days after birthing Mary. So her suicide. Not attempt. of suicide, sorry. So she didn't die of suicide. She died after complications from the birth. She did. That was my question. Yes. So yeah. her suicide attempt was prior to pregnancy with Mary Shelley. Correct. So she had a really um, tortured mental state at various times throughout her life. Wow. And there's plenty of feminists who've written on that and considered that it could have been because she was really torn about her sexuality. Yeah, right. Because you're you're saying that this woman absolutely posited that there was another way of gender bias, of sexuality, of the role of a woman in society. And you can imagine back then, we're talking 1780. You know, everyone and their horse, I imagine the milk float man as he went past, cast his eye down and went, no, no milk for you. I don't want any of that stuff, not at all, because I'm a man and I'm very comfortable with the patriarchy, thanks, Mary. Absolutely. And so she died of complications to Mary's birth. Yes, only a few days after, which is so sad but very, very common in those days. Mm. And the other thing to note is that I've focused in my little dissertation on her age at death. She was only 38. But back then, 38 was getting on to middle age, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. You you were very old if you died in your 50s. Mm -hmm. So her prolific back catalogue is something to look at as a thing of beauty, really. Mm. And I would really encourage listeners to go back and read some of these texts, no doubt because of the way too, that we practice feminism now. You know, it's lovely to know where our foremothers came from. We don't have many. We should mm. focus on the ones that we do. Yeah. What what a what a story and, and so much power. And I, I often think with the people, um, our, our foremothers and forefathers, our forebearers, you know, these revolutionaries that that, you know, really thought so differently to not only the systems that we live in, but art and creativity and, you know, reframing the structural um, boundaries that were so entrenched back then. I really sometimes hope and pray, not that I'm religious whatsoever, but, 
you know, thank you, Mary Wollstonecraft. And I hope there's a part of your essence that today feels the gratitude for the strength you would have had to have. Your insight there is so clever, right? So absolutely. It's impossible for us to consider really, to conceptualise how it would have been, Mm. how tough it would have been. Mm. And your point about the arts is a beautiful one for me to note that one of her first treaties included lots of references to Shakespeare Mm. and to the Bible. Mm. So what she cleverly did was take the writing of men and demonstrate through extracts how women women's rights were being vindicated. Love so it. she very cleverly, I think, used the language of the time mm. and the texts that she had available to her. Mm-hmm. And I thank her because if it weren't for the work that she did and the tough yards that she overcame... I probably wouldn't be sitting here today being able to be an artist. Or or have this conversation or even have this conversation. That bridges me straight back to my point that I agree with you that I'm extremely thankful for the forebearers who paved the path for this conversation to take place. I'm so glad when we had your moist moment about Mary that we decided to extrapolate on this. I find this topic to be so powerful, so relevant And to know that someone from 250-odd years ago still – there is still issues within the system that was being fought by someone back then today and to put that into context lops my head clean off. It just lops off. Yeah, I really agree. And what I I think we can really learn from a woman like this is that we can apply similar subversion and similar attacks on – the status quo mm-hmm. by looking to the way that she wrote and maybe applying those considerations to things like achieving diversity. Mm-hmm. So the diversity that we've just been talking about as lacking in our parliament, mm-hmm. we could look to her words, to her writing, and then apply some of those considerations, yeah, to increasing the number of Asian faces, the number of brown faces, the number of black faces, the number of people in our parliament who should be there because our population has so diversified across the country. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Love it. Take what we already have and reframe it with a, a lens that is a little bit more indicative of our truth, our Yeah, especially truth. when when it's been successful, hey? Absolutely. Michelle, to wrap up this season on that note, I am extremely grateful to you to bring Mary Wollstonecraft, who I'd never heard of in my life, into my life. I feel, you know, really shooketh by this woman and what she went through. And I agree with you that taking a little piece of her forward in in all of us, whether it's in the writing, in the knowing, in the reflection of the difficulties and the, the strength that she had, is something that I think is a beautiful way for us to end this season. And I'm extremely grateful. And I'm glad that we we went with your moist moment. We took your moist moment and we really got wet with it. <laughs> we just got wet didn't with it. No, we were gonna take that that far. But yeah, we did <laughs> dripping all over. Michelle, I want to thank you so much for a wonderful season two. Dear valued listener, working with Michelle is like working with a garden of sunshine and, and beautiful smelling flowers. It's inspiring. She's fun. She's intelligent. And she, I think, balances me quite well, wouldn't you say, Michelle? 
Yes, I think we're quite different and also quite similar in ways that mean that we can complement each other. It's been an absolute delight working on the podcast with you. I have actually learned a lot. I think that the idea behind the podcast works in that way. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I'm thoroughly excited about getting into another season. Once we've had a bit of a, a reflect, a bit of a think about the way that this and, and season one have gone. Yeah. So D Valley listener, thank you for joining us up to this point, up to the end of season two. We will be back for season three, but we're going to take a minute to just um, cuddle and rest and reflect on it all. But rest assured, the M coloured lens is anything but done and remember listeners colour everything in your life with a little bit of M love you Michelle love you love you bye bye